wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here once again with another hour of news, views and reviews from the world of geek. And if you can sense a, a slight edge of irritation in my voice, that's because as I record this right now, I am a little bit grumpy. And the reason I'm a little bit grumpy is I had 57 minutes, 57 whole minutes of this show, which is 60 minutes long, recorded. And then I thought, oh, you know what? I'm a little bit tired. And so I went to bed last night. And I went to bed last night without saving the Audacity file. I know. I know. I'm mad mostly at myself because what happened? For the first time in quite a long time, my computer decided to turn itself off and turn itself back on again so it could install some Microsoft updates that I didn't want and will never use. And because I hadn't saved the Audacity file, and for some reason Audacity doesn't autosave, I lost almost all of that 57 minutes. I actually do have about 17 minutes saved because that is the second part of the 90s comics rundown that would have been in last week's show had I not left it on a memory stick when I went away from home last week. So I suppose my incompetence last week has saved me a little bit from my incompetence of this week. But you know what? I really wish I could stop being incompetent, I think is, is probably where I'm at with this. Anyway, hello. Sorry, you don't really need to know how the sausage gets made in that level of detail, do you? <sighs> Never mind. Anyway, we will get started with a little bit of news. This news really changes everything. And yes, it's the sad Spock jingle this week, because although... There has been some good news this week. That's coming in a different segment. So for the actual geeky news segment this week, we're going to focus on something that's not been good for a while. And that, of course, is Twitter. And Twitter has continued to descend, really. I, I remember when Elon Musk took over, the Elon Musk fanboys were all like, Oh, whoa, dude, he's like going to come and fix it, bro. Like Twitter's a dumpster fire and he's totally going to like sort it, man. Um, That's exactly how they talk, by the way. It's like a direct quote. And I note now that the same people, more or less, are now saying like, yeah, dude, like Musk just bought Twitter to like shut it down, man. Uh, because that, that's really what he's doing. I, 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 uh. Anyway, what's going on with Twitter? Well, the first thing that's happening with Twitter is that, quite frankly, I've had enough. I don't know that it actually qualifies as a news story that my business is removing itself from Twitter as of the end of this month. But, um, hey, it's my show. So if I say it's news, it's news. And some of you might need to know this, actually. Um, it's untenable. We just can't be there anymore. I, I, I We're going to get into why, because it's why quite a lot of other people find it untenable, too. Um, I mean, what's what's basically happened since Musk took over is what was already a dumpster fire. And do you know what? It's 
uh, th- there's a little bit of revisionism going on, I think, amongst the people who miss Twitter, because it was always horrible. <laughs> it was always a terrible place full of hate speech and misogyny and transphobia and homophobia and racism. You know, it was always that. That was always there. It, it, it used to be there because it was an open forum and people are vile, not by design. And increasingly, it's beginning to look as though that's what's happening. Now, you will remember that when Musk first came in carrying that wretched sink, still not a joke that was ever funny, he said that he was a free speech absolutist. He wasn't about stopping people saying what they needed to say. He said that Twitter was the, the Internet's town square and that, you know, ideas should all ideas should be available for discussion and ideas would have to stand and fall on their own merits, which on the face of it, if you don't give it any real thought, makes a kind of sense. It's just that that's not how anything works. So it it was never going to go well. And well, it's, Musk is not a good faith operative here, I don't think. And it became very clear very quickly that Free speech on Twitter was indeed absolute if Elon Musk agreed with you. And once you once you accept that as a thing, then you start to notice some deeply uncomfortable things about Musk himself. Because if my premise that free speech was fu- was was absolute if Elon Musk agreed with it, you then have to look at the people whose free speech was protected on Twitter and the people whose free speech was not. An awful lot of people whose accounts had been suspended or who had been banned from Twitter under the old regime found themselves back. Even Donald Trump got his Twitter back. And that shouldn't have surprised anybody. That's what Musk had said he was going to do. He was going to allow free speech. Heavy air quotes there. However... What became very clear very quickly was that if he'd been chucked off Twitter for being what the mainstream media likes to call far right or alt right wackos, you were probably coming back. But if you were on the left and on the even approaching the extremes in that direction, not only were you not coming back if you were gone already, you were fairly likely to be gone soon. In the meantime, people who were reporting hate speech, anti-Semitism, racism, misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, all of that stuff for moderation were being told, nah, this doesn't violate our community standards. We had death threats. And that's when a lot of people started to judge, you know what, this is not worth it. And people started to drift away and advertisers started to drift away because... If you are a major brand, you need to sell your stuff to everybody. I'm in no way suggesting that there's no racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia or any of the other nasty stuff ingrained in corporations, because of course it is. But they don't want to be associated with it. So, yeah, if you're a mainstream brand, let's call you um, Big Soda. You're Big Soda. And... You want you, you you advertise on the internet. You don't want images of your soft drink scans coming up next to swastikas. 
You don't want images of your soft drinks cans coming immediately after a homophobic rant in which somebody said that all queer people should be killed. You don't want that. And so companies started to drift away from Twitter. They started to not advertise there. And Elon Musk started to worry because he massively overpaid for what is effectively a website that's never made money. And advertising is one of the quick ways you can monetize a website. So he was wanting more advertising, not less. And if you've looked at Twitter lately, you will see that, you know, that there is no big name advertising to speak of on there anymore. It's gone. It's all gone. And Musk now is starting to look around for somebody to blame. And look, full disclosure, you all know how I feel about Elon Musk. I am trying really hard to be fair here. In his shoes, I would be panicking too. But one of the things you need to do if you've made an error, and I would contend that one or two of the things at least that Musk has done around Twitter have been errors. You'll notice I'm still calling it Twitter for a start. But if you're going to deal with an error and sort it out, you do have to acknowledge that you have, in fact, made an error. And Musk, I don't think he's capable of doing that. So Musk is casting around for other people to blame. And he's found a culprit, folks. He's gone very big and very hard in the last week because he thinks he's found the people who are, in his mind, sabotaging his Twitter project. You'll never guess. Really? No, 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 no. Seriously, go on. Guess. Yes, of course. He's blaming the Jews, which is ah, frustratingly predictable and really, really annoying. Uh, basically, what he said is uh, there's an organization called the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. This is a Jewish organization which exists entirely to rebut attacks on the Jewish community, on the Jewish religion, on Jewish ethnicity. It's all about resisting anti-Semitic prejudice, anti-Semitic um, imagery, anti-Semitic cliche, all of that stuff. Um, now, I'm, again, I'm not about to pretend that the ADL is a completely squeaky clean organisation. Very few organisations are. But its job, its, its entire reason for being is... It sees an anti-Semitism, it points out the anti-Semitism, it encourages people to not do the anti-Semitism. That's what it's for. At its best, that's what it's doing. And Musk has latched onto this and said that he is hearing, people are telling him, which is always a, a dodgy phrase, people are telling him that one of the reasons corporations are pulling their adverts is because the ADL is telling them to. Because clearly, you know, that there's that much power in the Jewish community that they can do that. Yeah, of course there is. Yes, that's right, Elon. Uh, and he's avoided anti-Semitic language mostly, but he has very clearly lent in to the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that, you know, that the media is controlled by the Jews. That's clearly where he's going with this. And he's really leaning in. I, I don't know whether he actually believes it or whether it's a convenient narrative for him. Uh, but either way, it's really bad news. 
It's not the only reason we're leaving Twitter, but I, I, it was kind of the final straw. I, I can't be doing with it. Uh, and just just as a, a final comment, I don't think we'll be talking about Twitter unless something amazing happens ever again. But I'm really sad about this. Twitter was a dumpster fire, but it was also a place where we found a community. As me, me personally, as an individual, I found a community. The shop, the business that I run, also found a community on there. And it took time to build. And there were connections that took time to make. And walking away from all of that is difficult. If you're not leaving Twitter right now, I understand why. I get it. I do. I'm in a position where I can afford to walk away from the connections that I've made and hope to rebuild those connections elsewhere. Other people may not feel they can do that and they're hanging on for grim death. So, you know, anyway, RIP Twitter, you were great. You were flawed, but we loved you. We don't like what you've become. And uh, so we're out. In other news, the strikes continue. The studios haven't really moved in their position. They still seem to be laboring under the misapprehension that they can starve SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America out. I don't think they can. I don't think the, the producers have fully understood exactly what it is that they are losing here right now. And I also think they still haven't quite understood that public opinion is not on their side. There is no progress to report, so we will move on. This news really changes everything. Uh, do you know, the lyrics in that jingle are a little inappropriate sometimes because none of that news really changed anything. But, yeah, it's the sen sentiment that counts, isn't it? Anyway, we will move on, as I said, and we will move on to the bit that's actually pre-recorded, the only bit of the original version of the show that continues to survive. Let's take a look at the second part of comics in the 1990s, The Collapse. So, a week later than advertised, the second part of the 90s in comics. And specifically, what went wrong? Because for a moment there, it all seemed so perfect. Comics were riding high. They were making episodes of the South Bank show about comics. I was allowed to write my dissertation for my BA about comics. For the record, this set out to answer the question, are comics literature? And the answer that I came to, which surprised myself, I have to be honest, is no, they're not. They're something different. Don't limit comics by confining them within the definition of literature. They're so much bigger than that. I'll grant you I only took a 2-2, but that is because I was working 48 hours a week all the way through my finals because um, I was broke. And thus began a lifetime of underachievement. Anyway, the point is, for a while there, everything was looking very rosy indeed. Sales were up, creators were getting paid, creators were making money, and comics, individual issues of comics, were beginning to increase in value. There was one brief moment there in the 
back end of the early 90s, if that makes any sense at all, or the beginning end, the beginning of the early, mid oh, around about 1993, when if you had a copy of an issue one from Image, if you had a copy of an issue one that was drawn by Todd McFarlane, if you had one of the big landmark event comics like Superman 75, in which Superman died, then there was a good chance that only a couple of months after you bought it for cover price, it would be worth significantly more than that. People would pay you money, believing that if they paid you over the odds, it didn't matter because soon it would be worth even more. The value of comics was only going to go up. It was a real comics boom. And therein lies the problem, because I think, and I genuinely do think this, if you were getting involved in comics in the early 90s and you were getting all enthusiastic about them, the reason that was happening, the reason so many people came to comics at that point is because the comics were really good. Just look at what we were coming out of at the end of the 80s. Yes, there was some dreadful cat. Of course there was, there always is. But coming out of the 80s, you know, Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, Daredevil Born Again, all of these things were recent memories. Neil Gaiman was riding high on Sandman. It, it just seemed as though that would be going on forever. And of course, that's not how things work. For a little bit, comics were able to surf the wave. But the trouble with waves is that eventually they crash into the beach. And the trouble with all booms is that eventually they bust. So it was to be with comics. It all started with quality. Or perhaps lack thereof. It became the conventional wisdom that any issue one would be worth stacks of cash in the future. And so what the punters really wanted was more issue ones. And because comics are a business as well as an art form, that's what the publishers gave their readers. They gave them more issue ones. The trouble with that is that normally, see the traditional way of deciding to put out the, the first issue of a comic is to have an idea for a story that you want to tell. And you write that story and then you break it up into issues and then you draw those issues and then you put out the first issue of that series. And that's where issue ones come from. Unless the idea that you have is that you just want some issue ones, in which case you just churn stuff out like sausages. And that was starting to happen. And for a little bit, people, it would be wrong to say that people didn't notice. People just didn't want to see it. People were going out and buying multiple copies of any old tat that happened to have issue one on the cover. In the, the earnest belief, and I will put my hand up here. I was in my early 20s and I did this. They would go out and buy, just buy multiple copies of any old tat just because they believed that they could sell all of those multiple copies at a profit later on. Now, that, that's, not, that's not how economics works. 
And again, I put my hand up. I was doing this. I had just passed A-level economics. I should have known this. I didn't. I'm an idiot. What can I tell you? And the publishers saw this and they thought, well, you know, we can't just keep relaunching everything. We can't just keep inventing new comics. How are we going to get our existing titles into this merry-go-round of selling multiple issues of the same thing? What can we do? Well, the first thing they did was big spectacular event comics. I mentioned Superman 75, The Death of Superman. That was purely a stunt. Around about the same time, Bruce Wayne got his back broken and stopped being Batman. And a whole new guy called Jean-Paul Valley became a much more violent, much more dangerous, much more criminal kind of Batman for a bit. And, you know, there was lots of that happening. And not just these big extravagant event storylines, but also gimmicks. So Superman 75, for instance, came sealed in a black plastic bag with a Superman logo on the front of it, dripping blood. And inside that black plastic bag, you didn't just get your Superman 75 issue in which Superman dies, but also a copy of a page from the Daily Planet newspaper announcing the death of Superman. And I think there was a poster which featured the funeral. And there was certainly, and I know because I wore this, there was certainly a black armband with the Superman logo on it. And that kind of giveaway became a, a relatively common thing. Uh, and then there was the beginning of a curse that stays with us. The multiple variant cover phenomena. Now, this is where you have a comic which has a cover. This is normal. Every comic has a cover. But this is where you, in, you have the same comic. So the pages in the comic are the same. But you don't just have one cover. You have many covers. So you have the main cover. And then you maybe have a variant by a different artist. And then maybe you have another variant that perhaps is only one in every 10 will be that cover. And then there'll be another that's only one in every 25 will be that particular cover. Maybe there'll be covers that glow in the dark. Maybe there'll be covers that with die cut holes in them. Maybe there'll be covers that are acetate that go over the top of another cover. So when you open the acetate, the vision changes. And for a while, people in this craziness would buy every single cover. So they might buy a copy of, I don't know, Flagman 75 to read, but then they'd buy another 15 issue, another 15 copies of Flagman 75 so they could have each of the different covers. And they would carefully bag these and board them and put them away out of the sun and they'd never read them so that they stayed pristine and in mint condition. And the theory was that this would maintain their value. And here is the problem. And do you know what? It's a problem that I still occasionally come across when I talk to people who found, you know, a stash of comics in their attic. And yeah, they come to me and say, oh, these are probably worth something. They're quite old. And you see that they're from the 80s or the 90s. 
And yeah, that's that's old. You know, they're over 30 years old. That's old for a comic. But they're not valuable because they're usually not that rare, particularly if they're from the 90s, because, mate, I've got 500 copies of this already kind of thing. You know, there's so many were printed, so many were bought that, you know, they're, they're worth pennies because they're not rare and nobody wants them. Anyone who wants one's got one, mate. No one's buying them. And so eventually the harsh fact that in order for something to increase in value, it has to be A, rare, and B, wanted. That began to sink in. And also people were suddenly realising, hang on a minute, I've just spent £100 on comics this week, and I've got like three different issues I can read. Everything else is a duplicate. This is a waste of my budget. And so people began to drift away. And to put it politely, the bottom fell out of the market, the bubble burst. And that comics implosion was pretty catastrophic when it happened. Actually, towards the end of the 90s, there was a mass disappearance of comic shops as they were suddenly discovering they'd spent a lot of money on stock that people were simply not buying. And they were left with vast quantities of stuff that was literally almost worthless and no way of recouping their investment. Plus, many of them had you know moved to bigger premises or moved to premises close to the centre of town where the rents were higher. And so their overhead heads had gone up and the money just wasn't coming in. And so comic shops started going bust. Now, this all became horribly apparent when bad things started to happen to the publishers too. What was notable and something that we still talk about in comic circles was the bankruptcy of Marvel. Marvel Comics, for so long at this point, had been the leader, the cool kids, the disruptor if you like to use like modern tech propons. Marvel Comics had emerged out of Atlas Comics in the early 1960s and immediately changed things. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko and all the rest of them launching a newer, more vibrant, more relevant type of superhero. You know, the likes of Spider-Man, and we talked about this the other week, the likes of Spider-Man and and the Hulk, heroes with flaws, heroes with problems, the X-Men who were used as uh, references to allegories for racism and stuff. You know, it, all of that was going on. The civil rights movement was being explored. Mo- contemporary political issues were being explored in the stories. And Marvel had led the way all the way through this, right up until the beginning of the 90s, when they failed to see which way the wind was blowing in terms of creator rights and the fans' view of creators. Marvel was still thinking that people were Marvel fans, and suddenly they weren't. They might be Spider-Man fans or X-Men fans, but in fact they were more likely to be Todd McFarlane fans or Eric Larson fans. And Marvel had been very slow to figure this out. And when 
you know, their rock star creators left and went off and set up Image in the early 90s, Marvel, all of a sudden, having been leading for so long, was left reacting. And it didn't really know what it was doing. And so it fell down the rabbit hole of multiple variant covers and glow-in-the-dark pop-up die-cut cover things. And I'm not even kidding. There, there was a comic, an issue of Ghost Rider that had a pop-up section in it. You know, every gimmick was tried as they desperately tried to look new and innovative in a way that they simply no longer were. And the sales figures at Marvel went through the floor to the point that Marvel was out of cash. And in 1996, they had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, which effectively is a US financial thing designed to give a company that's in serious but turn-roundable financial difficulty time to, to restructure and come up with a plan to get itself out of the doo-doo. Here's this point in the late 90s when Marvel starts flogging off the movie rights to its A-list characters. So, you know, your Spider-Mans, your X-Mens, your Fantastic Fours, who apparently are A-list, your Incredible Hulks, you know, because they needed the cash. They just needed the money. And, you know, to be honest, they might never have gotten out of Chapter 11 had they not been bought by Disney in 1999. And, of course, Marvel remains a subsidiary of Disney to this day. And so, as the 90s drew to a close, comics were looking pretty fragile, actually. As we approached the year 2000, the future was looking pretty bleak. The rise of the comic shops had driven the, certainly in the UK, had driven American comics off the news agent's shelf. And in America, it, they'd been driven pretty much off the newsstand. If you wanted comics now, you had to go to a comic store, which at that one point in the 90s had been fine because there were comic stores everywhere. But suddenly the comic shops were gone. So you couldn't get easily your comics from a local comic shop. You probably didn't have one. And you couldn't go back to the newsagent because they were not stocking comics anymore. Because your average newsagent has no need of a diamond account. Comics were only ever a periphery for, for newsagents and newsstands. And when the, dis the distributors that they actually dealt with stopped carrying comics, so did the newsagents. And so comics were hard to get, and so people stopped getting them. Only weirdos like me went to the trouble of finding one of the comic shops that was still around that did mail order. Uh, for about five years, I was buying my comics by mail order from Ace Comics in Colchester because that's the comic shop I was referred to when my old local comic store, New Earth Comics in York, had gone under. If things aren't easy to get, people don't bother getting them. People don't realise that they're missing out on getting comics if they've never had comics to get. And so it was all looking a bit grim. Things picked up. Don't get too concerned. Things definitely picked up. But we'll talk about that another day when we go into the 2000s. But for now, 
we're going to leave our little comic segment about there. And we will move on to more news, but this time, news of a happier nature. News of a fascinating nature. In short, news from... So we have some quite exciting news coming to us from space to do with the search for extraterrestrial life. Specifically, the James Webb Space Telescope, which I haven't talked about for a while, but is still out there and still doing really interesting stuff, might, might have discovered tentative, and we're emphasising that word, tentative evidence of life signs on an exoplanet. What they think they found is a molecule called dimethyl sulfide, or DMS, because NASA does love an acronym. That's not an acronym, is it? It's an initialism. It doesn't matter. On Earth, this is a molecule that is only produced by life. There is no other natural method on Earth by which this molecule can be produced. Now, the researchers are trying quite hard to play this down because every time you publish some serious research that suggests there may be signs of life anywhere that isn't here, you get the usual sort of hyperbolic press coverage. And David Bowie's estate makes a fortune because they start playing Is There Life on Mars every five minutes. So the researchers are being very, very cautious. They are stressing that the planet we're talking about here is 120 light years away, which means we're not getting a a clear view of K218b. Because, again, please can we stop letting astronomers name things. Uh, But... If they find more data, they might be able to at least confirm the detection of the molecule. And this is, you know, cautiously exciting. Um, The research team uh, from the University of Cambridge uh, say that they were shocked that when they saw the results, um, because, as I said, and I'm quoting them now, on Earth, DMS is only produced by life. The bulk of it in Earth's atmosphere is emitted from a phytoplankton in marine environments. Now, you know, if this is evidence of life, it's not evidence of intelligent life, it's not evidence of complex life, but evidence of any kind of life on another world is quite exciting. Um, now, Professor Madhusudan, and I've looked everywhere for a correct pronunciation of his name, or possibly her name, because I am unclear as to the gender of the professor, whose first name is Niku, and I don't know whether that implies any gender either. So I'm just going to call them the professor from now on because I can pronounce that. So the professor uh, described the detection of DMS, as I said, as tentative, and that more data is going to be needed to confirm whether it's there or not. And you know those results are expected within the next year. Quoting them now, 
If confirmed, it would be a huge deal, and I feel a responsibility to get this right if we are making such a big claim. Yes, we're back to Carl Sagan here. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And if you make a claim like, we found life on a planet 120 light years away, you kind of need some serious proof. Now, this is the first time astronomers have detected the possibility of DMS in a planet orbiting a distant star. And they are continuing, as I keep saying, to treat the results with caution. And they're looking back at the just the apparent discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus in 2020, which was disputed a year later. And yet astronomers are still arguing about those results. And I think they're trying to avoid that kind of controversy. Dr. Robert Massey, who has a name that I can pronounce, uh, is the, the deputy director of the Royal Astronomical Society of London, and he has no direct connection with the research. And you know, he says, look, this is exciting. He confirms that we're, we're right to be kind of excited by this. He says we are moving sl slowly towards the point where we'll be able to answer the big question as to whether we are alone in the universe or not. He went on, I'm optimistic that we will one day find signs of life. Perhaps it will be this. Perhaps in 10 or even 50 years, we'll have evidence that is so compelling that it is the best explanation. And yeah, I think that's fair. I, I don't know whether this is going to turn out to be life or not. Of course I don't. Nobody knows. But I do share the view that we're going to find it at some point. We may never be able to con contact it, but we've got to find it because it I sort of think the law of averages says it has to be there, let alone the Drake equation. I, I just It has to be there somewhere. And the JWST is probably the best instrument we've ever had for picking this stuff up. Um, it can analyse the light that passes through a distant planet's atmosphere, even if it is hundreds of light years away. That light contains the chemical signature of the mo molecules in the planet's atmosphere. Those details can then be deciphered by splitting the light into its, its frequencies, the frequencies that make up the beam of light. In the same way, you, know, if you, you will have seen at some point a prism or indeed a rainbow, which does exactly the same thing. If parts of the spectrum are missing, that means it's been absorbed by chemicals in the planet's atmosphere. And those little black lines in the spectrum of light coming from a star or a planet can tell us what's absorbing that light, and that can help researchers figure out the chemical makeup of an atmosphere. Now, it is particularly, particularly impressive that they've made this discovery in light coming from 120 light years. That's more than 1.1 million billion kilometers away. So the amount of light that's hitting the telescope is tiny. The sensitivity of the instruments here is unbelievably impressive. Now, and you might be wondering, yeah, surely then we can spot other things in the atmosphere of this planet? And the answer is yes, we can. And as well as DMS, the spectral analysis of the planet from K218b has detected an abundance of the gases methane and carbon dioxide. 
with a pretty high degree of con- uh, of confidence. Now, the proportions that they're seeing, the proportions of CO2 and methane that they're seeing, would be consistent with there being a water ocean underneath a hydrogen-rich atmosphere. The Hubble Space Telescope had detected the presence of water previously, which is why K218b was one of the first to be investigated by the JWST, which is significantly more powerful. Uh, And the possibility of an ocean is a huge step forward because the ability for a planet to be able to support life depends on its temperature, on the presence of carbon, at least if we're looking for life as we know it, Jim, uh, and probably requires liquid water. If we're going to look for life that's like us, or like we find on Earth at least, that's what we need. The JWST observations kind of suggest that K218b checks off every single one of those boxes. However, just because a planet has the potential to support life, it does not mean that it does, which is why the discovery of DMS is so intriguing. What makes it even more intriguing is that K218b is not an Earth-like rocky planet. It is, in fact, nine times, or nearly nine times, the size of Earth. Now, that puts K218b in a category known to exoplanet hunters as sub-Neptunes. That is to say, a planet bigger than Earth, but smaller than Neptune. And this is a type of planet that we don't have in our solar system, so we've never had a good close-up look at at one, because we can't. And it does seem that the sub-Neptune category of planet is the most common type of planet that we found in the galaxy so far. Dr. Subhajit Sarkar of Cardiff University, he's working with the uh, the analysis team says that although this planet does not exist, this kind of planet, sorry, does not exist in our solar system, sub-Neptunes are the most common type of planet known so far in the galaxy. And he goes on, we have obtained the most detailed spectrum of a habitable zone sub-Neptune to date, and this has allowed us to work out the molecules that exist in its atmosphere. Now, what that means is this is only the first really good look we've had at the chemical makeup of the atmosphere of one of the most common types of planet that exists, which means we're going to find something, aren't we? At some point, we're definitely going to find something. And I find that so exciting. I I grew up on science fiction. You'll be unsurprised to discover. And the vast majority of science fiction involves humans and non-human intelligent life forms in some kind of collaboration and oh i've always been fascinated by the idea that intelligent life could be out there somewhere now as i said this is not what we're finding here there's there's no indication of anything like that but everything's got to start somewhere and just knowing that we can actually look and see this stuff now is unbelievably exciting. There is obviously a lot more 
research to be done here. But we will be keeping a very close eye on what's going on and um, we will keep you very well informed. And now we're going to move on very quickly to another slightly less fun space story. Uh, it's another one of those issues where politics impinges on space and uh, two items that are connected to the same thing, really. I'm just going to briefly note that uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has met with the leader of North Korea. And it seems that they are trying to come to some kind of agreement whereby North Korea provides armaments to Russia, which is very quickly using all the ones that it's got up uh, by dropping them on Ukraine. And the Russians will provide rocket technology to North Korea. Now, we know that North Korea want this stuff. And we also know that they're, they're doing what everybody does when they want this stuff, which is sort of suggesting what they really want is a space program. But I think we all know that the reason the North Koreans want rocket technology is because they can't make their long-range missiles work. This is bad. Uh, and, you know, we talked a lot about Werner von Braun last week and how, you know, it was the Nazi V2 project that paved the way for the rockets that took us to the moon. And that's essentially what North Korea is doing in reverse. It's, it, it, I think it wants to take space technology and apply it to military hardware. This would work. Yeah, All of the Russian and most of the American space rockets you know, started life as intercontinental ballistic missiles. So yeah, working backwards from, from what we've got now to an intercontinental ballistic missile, not hard. And we should be worried, therefore, about that. And perhaps something else we should be worried about. Uh, and another application of tech, which has, for me at least, slightly worrying connotations for the future, is the reports which have been confirmed that Elon Musk basically thwarted uh, a Ukrainian drone attack on the Russian Navy as part of Ukraine's defence against Russian aggression. I think that the issues around all of this are actually more complicated than the press coverage has made it seem. You know, the reports I've seen, and again, this might just be a result of the kind of press that I look at, but the reports that I've seen have all been very, Elon Musk is a maniac. He must be stopped. He's got too much power. And whilst I don't disagree with any of that, I actually think we're in some fairly murky waters here. Uh, in terms of morality and ethics on all sides. So basically, the reason Musk was able to do this is, as we reported some time ago now, close to the beginning of the war, one of the first things that happened after the Russian invasion of the greater part of Ukraine in 2022. Was it 2022? 2021? I've lost track. It seems like forever ago. One of the things that happened which I was very much in favour of at the time, was that Musk redeployed some of his Starlink network so that Ukraine would have good internet coverage, so that Ukraine could use 
things like drones in its defence. And yeah, I was I was pretty cool with that actually. I was it's one of the things that Musk has done in recent years that I've actually been in favour of. What he did more recently was as I as as the reports suggest, and as I say, this has mostly been confirmed now. He got wind that the Ukrainians were going to use uh, seaborne drones to attack Russian ships at harbour in, well, the Black Sea, presumably. And he decided, either by himself or with the help of his personal advisers, that were that to happen, that would escalate the war. And he decided that that would be a bad thing. And so he turned off Starlink. As a result, the drones could not be operated and they stopped. And yeah, and yeah, the good news here is that nobody was hurt, at least directly, by this. The bad news is you know, we don't know what effect a successful mission of that type would have had on the Russian invasion and the Ukrainian defence of their homeland. We don't know whether it would have set the Russians back or pushed the Russians back. Perhaps it might have been the start of something that would have ended the war more quickly. We don't know. We can't know. We can speculate and we can't even do that particularly accurately. But what we have is a private company interfering in the I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, it's not really the foreign policy actions of another company, of, of, a, of a sovereign country, because, I don't know, is defending your home soil foreign policy? Anyway, also, of course, Ukraine is an ally of the US. Uh, Starlink is a US company. Musk is a US citizen. I don't know, and I don't think the US State Department has confirmed whether the US State Department had an opinion about that kind of attack and whether it would cause an escalation. I think on at least one level, we should be concerned that a private citizen it has the power to intervene in international stuff in quite that way. But we shouldn't just look at it like that and say, oh, what a terrible man Elon Musk is, what a horrible ego he must have to think that he has the right to interfere in that kind of thing. Because the thing is, he does, because those are his satellites. Those satellites are private property. They're the property of SpaceX, which is owned by Elon Musk. And as far as I can tell, it's wholly owned by Elon Musk. I have actually looked to see if I can buy, buy shares in SpaceX, and I don't. you don't appear to be able to. So it's not even as though he's answering to shareholders. It's his stuff. They are his toys to play with. Now, we can agree or disagree with what he chooses to do with them. But we live in a society where private property is respected and people cannot be forced to use their private property in ways they don't want that property to be used. So on that level, at least, Musk had every right to do what he did. And that's bothersome because that actually really does have implications moving forward because the drive is to privatise the whole of low Earth orbit. NASA is getting out of the low Earth orbit business and turning it over 
to private companies like SpaceX. They, you know, NASA already cannot send people to the International Space Station. It literally doesn't have the kit. It's reliant completely on SpaceX, who currently have a monopoly on this, although you know the work is continuing to make it not a monopoly. We should perhaps think about that. Because what if Elon Musk decides tomorrow that he doesn't want to bring people home from the International Space Station? How will we get our astronauts home? Because the only other way to do it at the moment is to hitch a ride on a Soyuz. And for all kinds of reasons that I'm fairly sure are obvious, that's not a, a straightforward proposition anymore. So something that I think everyone had assumed was a straightforward, yes, it's time to turn this over to business now in the same way that governments don't operate airlines anymore. That was sort of thought of as a straightforward, obvious, sensible progression. It's not looking quite so sensible anymore. Something to think about. Oh, I've managed to bring it down again, haven't I? Yeah, OK, let's wrap space there. And you see, this is what happens when I lose pre-recorded audio, because I now don't have time to drop in the piece on Werner von Braun that I wanted to do. I mean, I can't drop in the piece because it got deleted, but I have the script here and I know how long it takes to work through. And um, it's more than the six minutes and 20 seconds that we have left in the show. So I'm going to put von Braun off for now and um, hit on a couple of... Slightly fluffier topics. I think it's been it's been quite a serious downer of a show so far. So, yeah, let's 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 fluff it up a bit, and let's do that by taking a look at this week's new releases. We've not done this for a couple of weeks. I think it's probably high time we did. And there's a couple of number ones out this week that really are worthy of some attention. So we'll start with a name that people will recognise, which is the Avengers. Only this is not the Avengers you remember. This is Avengers. Inc. And here we have Janet Van Dyne, the original Wasp, fashion icon, Avenger, superhero, all-round purveyor of grade A awesomeness. And she's brought in here to solve a mystery, specifically the mystery of six murders that have taken place on the raft, which is, in the Marvel world, the top security prison where supervillains are sent. And she takes a personal interest in this because one of the victims of these murders, which should have been impossible, is a guy called Whirlwind, who is kind of her arch nemesis. When she gets there, she finds that all three murder victims have one very important thing in common, which is they're not dead. What stands out about Whirlwind, though, is that he's now using a different name, a name she recognises. And so the two of them set out to solve not just this mystery, but some other mysteries along the way. There's a real Avengers vibe about this book, by which I mean Steed and Mrs. Peel, although she's Steed in this scenario. So we're doing some interesting stuff here. It's Really nicely written by Al Ewing, the guy who made The Hulk such a, a, a must-read book for so long. Uh, some really nice, tonally appropriate art by Leonard Kirk uh, with some beautifully muted colours 
by Alex Sinclair and great letters by uh, VCs Corey Petit. I really like this. It's 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 a grown up superhero book in that it's not all about action and bright colours, although action does occur. It's much more cerebral. It's perhaps a little slower. And it's much closer to how things would actually be if superheroes were actually a thing. Uh, I, I really liked it. Uh, and then we have Daredevil, who is starting again from issue one with a new creative team. Um, words by the brilliant Saladin Ahmed uh, with art from Aaron Kuda and uh, Jesus Abatov. Uh, I presume he pronounces it Jesus. He might pronounce it Jesus. I've never heard him say it out loud. Um, and here we have a new beginning for Matt Murdock. And I really do mean a completely clean slate. He has no memory of his previous life. He has no memory of being a lawyer. He has no memory of being daredevil. He is, in fact, currently under holy orders. So, what's next for Father Matthew Murdock? This is what we would call a perfect jumping on point. If you've never read Daredevil before, but, you know, maybe you saw him cameo in She-Hulk. Maybe you've seen the Netflix show and you're interested in checking out the comics. This is a brilliant, brilliant place to start because you don't need to know anything that's ever gone before. The central, central character doesn't. Everything's going to get explained as you go. So brilliant jumping on point. Saladin Ahmed is one of my very favourite writers. He did such excellent work on Ms. Marvel a couple of years ago. And his debut here on Daredevil is absolutely on point. So that's another highly recommended Marvel book. It's unusual for me to have two Marvel picks of the week in one go. Uh, and so for our third and final pick, we're going to just reach out into the indie world a little bit more. Uh, with Coda issue one from Boom Studios uh, by Simon Spurrier with art from uh, Mateus Bergara. Now, this is the second run of Coda. But again, it's a completely fresh start. It's a great jumping on point as our post-apocalyptic fantasy world continues. The melancholic bard Hum finds a slice of tranquility with his wife, an Urken named Circa. But things are about to go differently. Is magic returning to the kingdom? Hum is sceptical, and Circa faces difficult moral decisions. It's going to be fun, and it's going to be sweary. Honestly, I flipping well love this series. I'm so glad to have it back, and I cannot wait to read issue two. And with that, we are going to have to leave it there because we are very rapidly running out of time. All that remains is for me to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production, which is proudly engineered, more or less, in what is an increasingly sunny Harrogate. We will be back next week. Uh, it's another travel week, so there may be no news segment then. But, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of other stuff, including part two of uh, our look at Werner von Braun and specifically von Braun's war. So we'll see you then, because that's going to be cheerful. <sighs> anyway, until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else, and above 
all else. Stay geeky.